Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We have to remember, going into this week's Parsha in particular, uh, that we are dealing with a very specific time and a very specific place. This is obviously, once we read it, you'll know what I'm talking about, obviously not how we would categorize life. It's not how we would go about certain things and how we think about things, which is a good thing. Um, one of the pieces I'm going to give you discusses that we don't think about things this way anymore and the way that that's a good thing. Um, it's, a, it's a different world, the world of Leviticus. It's a different understanding of how the universe is put together. So we're allowed to have our feelings about how... <clears throat> Shorts, how not sighted like we are this is. And the, the work always, as an anthropologist, as an English you know, a student of English literature, um, the teaching is always we, we have to try to appreciate the text in its own context first to understand what it's trying to say in its time. What is it getting at? How does it differ from the communities um, of culture that it's surrounded by? What can we learn from that? And then we can have our own responses, you know, in our own time about, about this. And, and so we'll just move into chapter 21. Somebody want to read? Adonai said to Moses, speak to the priests, the son of, sons of Aaron, and say to them, none shall defile himself or any dead person among his kin, except for the relatives that are closest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. Also for a virgin sister close to him because she has not married. For her he may defile himself. But he shall not defile himself as a kinsman by marriage and so profane himself. All right, so what are we talking about? Burial. Speak to the Kohanim. So this is only for the priests. This is not... Doesn't even say the Levites, right? It says the Kohanim. Why do Kohanim need to remain pure? Why? They're representing the people in the temple. So they have to be ready to do that, right? So it's not that they're necessarily doing that, it's that they have to be ready to do that. And to be ready to be called up for service means you've got to be in a state of ritual purity. So you're not allowed, you Kohanim. To defile yourselves, meaning become ritually other, ritually impure through contact with a dead person among your extended family. Remember, they lived in extended family units. The Kohanim would have been living together, right, in extended family units, except for the relatives that are closest. So mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister who doesn't have another man who's responsible for her because she's unmarried, um, right? For these, you may, he may defile himself, but not, through, but not for in-laws. What about wife? So wife is not on here, here, right? Adam, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Adam saved us. Because yeah. <laughs> the copier was not speaking to me very nicely this morning. Um, what does defile mean? So it means to become ritually impure. The English they're choosing for that verb is defile. 
Does that make sense? So how does that, how do you defile yourself for a dead person? What, what action are you Contact doing? with the corpse. So touching or being within distance? Well, both become rabbinically uh, important. Is Con- that why the caskets are it's what? No. It must be more than touching. Because so um, proximity, when the, when the rabbis discuss tameh and tahor, the categories of, of ritually impure and ritually pure, how something communicates impurity, because remember it's contagious, the way it communicates impurity, there's lots of different ways. Pouring from one vessel into another vessel transfers the contamination. Um, then they rule that that being in a closed space also can can communicate a situation of of tumah of ritual impurity. That is why priests aren't to be in a place with a dead body. Is this why um, some people like on their lapels and their death and their death. No. So, no. The Korea ribbon. <laughs> I'm just so friendly and helpful this morning as a teacher, aren't I? I'm so encouraging. Um, <laughs> no. And the. Wrong. The wrong. <laughs> the black thing on the lapel is the remnant that we have of the ritual that one used to do when one heard of the death of a close family member. One tore the garment one was wearing and wore it for Shiva. You wore that garment for seven days. It communicated to everybody that you were in mourning. It would have been your outer garment. So in Duluth, it would have been your parka. Like the thing everyone knew you by. You know, your, your outer garment you wore all the time, right? So um, you would tear your parka to let people know. Oh, there's Amy, because I know by the bright green parka, right? But it's torn. So, so everybody knows right away you're in a state of mourning. We don't, except in the very, very, very observant world, we don't tear our garment anymore. So what we, but there's a blessing you recite for that tearing. <clears throat> so what we do is we give people this strip, we say the blessing, and then we tear that strip, um, and then they wear that. So it's you know, some people say, well, that's just silly. You know, you put on this little strip, a ribbon you're going to tear. How is it anything like tearing your clothes? However, I think it isn't the same. It isn't similar, right, in terms of what you're doing. I think it is... Please. Um, you need to keep us in tune. That is most important. That's very easy. It, oh, see, love that. He's way friendlier than me, right, this morning. So... Um, but the, the way it does function still in the same way as Kriya did once upon a time is that, and this is what I tell people when we do it, is that allow this to let you, as you look in the mirror, as you walk through life, remind you that you're in mourning. That's why I mirror is so important. I mean, I have, I, you know, I think that's what it's for. It's like it's I was grateful. It I felt like at yeah. least there was something. At least somebody. Was it tells everybody else you're in mourning. It tells you you're in mourning, and so to be patient and generous with yourself because it's going to be like this. If you feel like you're going to laugh at a really inappropriate time, right? Remember, look at this, and remember, you're in a crazy place that's called grief, intense grief. So, um, so in that way, I think it still functions um, when people use it that way, I think it's still really, really helpful. And I mean, that's what I hear you saying, that it's, yeah, it, it was helpful. So 
Wait, somebody else said something, and I said no. <laughs> People asked about wives. It's, it's, I had a question. About closed casket? Is that what someone asked? Yeah. Um, right. So we close the casket because we consider it an imposition on the dead to look at them when they can't control who's looking at them, for how long, in what way, that it's considered a breach of, of respect for the dead that they're being looked at and touched or dealt with in a way when they have no control. Like, we would never let that happen in life. Could you imagine me laying on this table and let everybody just walk by and look at me however they wanted? Right? <laughs> um, right? It, we would just never do that. It's too intimate, right? It's too, it's too vulnerable. And so our whole business, once someone dies, is kavod hamet, uh, respect for the dead person. Meaning that means the dead person, not the body, right? We respect the body because it housed the person, um, and the person is both for us. We're not people who bought into that Western split between the spirit and the material. We are some. We are people who sees them as really inextricably linked. And so once the soul is not really part of that anymore, it doesn't lessen the sanctity of the body. So to honor that person, we take care of the body, right? Traditionally, someone sits with the body in the mortuary. In a Jewish mortuary, there's somebody who sits with the body and traditionally when it used to be that you sat with the body till it was buried in the morning or whatever, um, you don't you don't leave the body alone. You you companion the body until it's buried. Um, and rabbinically that there's an understanding that the soul kind of hovers until the body is taken care of. And so you're actually engaging with the spirit of the person who's still there um, in that sense. Um, so the... So how do you have a organ donation? Because saving a life is the most important Jewish value there is, and it is not seen as disrespectful to the dead to have them contribute to saving a life. So saving a life is always the high you know it's a value not to cut open I mean, a dead I, body I mean, and I take things out of it but it's a higher value to preserve life always and so when when our values conflict you have to kind of decide which one you're going to go with and the rabbis have decided and by the way unequivocally they have decided that organ donation is absolutely the higher value so people who say it's against Jewish law to donate are just dead flat out wrong. Even the Orthodox. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's huge. Yes. So so please, if nothing, if you take nothing else from this morning, please take that out into the world that we should be donating whatever is usable. You're, you're always telling us how terse Torah Uh-oh. is, and I have a question because uh, right at the first line it says, "Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron." Since there are no other priests than the sons of Aaron, it seems like a repetition there. Department of Redundancy Department, right? So um, very good reading, Pam. So um, sometimes this is an indication of the tension between the Mushite and the Aaronid clans. The Mushite clans were followers of Moshe, and the Aaronid clans were those who followed Aaron and had him as their highest leader, representative. What we get in Torah is the fusion 
and a balance of powers between Moshe and Aharon, but in some senses they are two different systems. The charismatic prophetic leader and the no, we just have to regulate how we do things every day and make it happen over and over and over and over to best live into, which in some ways is pagan, right? That the pagan world that this is kind of disrupting, but yet a little bit a part of in terms of the cultic system, the pagan world says you just have to keep doing everything over and over so that the cycle of life continues. The regularity, the right, this is how we keep the relationship with the powers that be um, regulated. And so there's some of that here with the with the Mishkan, and of course we're talking about the temple ultimately, and the priesthood and all of those rituals that happen day to day and doing them exactly right and protecting exactly the procedures. Um, and then you have this other model, which is the visionary leaders who's always saying, y'all aren't there yet. You're not there yet. We have to change it. You have to do something different. You have to understand it differently, right? And kind of this prophetic, visionary cr- critique of how we're doing it. Those are very different systems. The glory for me of ancient Israel um, in terms of what we got handed down as a people is that there's a fusion understood as kind of a balance. That's an evolution. Canaanite pagan religion would have been much much like we see the Israelite cult. right? What we get is this other idea that there's ethics and values and ways of behaving outside of the regularity of the, of the sacrifices or of the offerings that informs the relationship between that power that they understood as God and the people. So that's one explanation scholars use for why we see and Aaron, and Aaron, or the priests, the sons of Aaron, right? Is the Aaronid clans had to have representation. Can I ask about, about uh, incineration? About what? It's against the Jewish law, I understand. About what? Cremation. Cremation? Yeah. So traditionally, cremation is understood as a, as a destruction of the body that is unacceptable. Um, it's as much cultural, I think, as anything else in terms of it's, it's how you would have it's how other cultures dealt with dealing with their dead was burning them so we wanted to, to distance ourselves from other religious folk around um, but also, I, I can't help but think it's also the violence of the ancient world of burning bodies. I mean, there's, you know it, it just it makes sense to me that we were people who resisted burning the body. Well, isn't also associated with the Messiah idea that when the Messiah arrives, everybody would rise up? In later Jewish writings, yes. In later Jewish thinking, when you get to eschatology, when you get to end times writings, there's this notion that there's going to be physical resurrection of the body, and so the body has to be intact in order for that to happen. Um, but that's li- that's later. But biblically, it was understood as a destruction of the body that was not respectful to burn it. I think there's something about all the burning that took place in the Holocaust that makes cremation just very negative to me. And, and, and I don't think that's new. I mean, I think it's new, the horror of the monstrosity of how <clears throat> effective they were at doing it, meaning how many people. But, but there is a part of me that thinks that's always been kind of our response to 
burning. You know, you think of you know the Romans conquering. They they burned the body so the disease wouldn't spread. You know, it's, it's like it's the way you don't care for a body is to burn it. And so I think we still, you know, for us it's the Shoah where we go, right? But I think probably it makes sense to me somehow in my kishkas that always we kind of went, like that's just not, that's, it's not a good thing when bodies are burning. You know, it's not a respectful good thing. That's not the context one usually saw that in, in the ancient world. Um, and burial is respectful because it protects the body from anything, right, happening to it after death. Um, and in the ancient world, you would have had the issue of wild animals, right? Things like that. So, you know, of course, we have burial in caves. Um, and, and also, when we talk about, there are some of us who anthropologically study this stuff, you know, from that perspective, who see that in the ancient world, we, st- we have found graves where the, the monument on the grave you know, and the way you marked the grave and protected the grave was with a pile of stones. So whose grave was well-tended? Talk to me about a well-tended grave. What would that look like? A lot, a lot of stones. stones. Huh? A lot of stones. A lot of stones. So <laughs> <laughs> is that why in modern times we take so, stones? So this is, stone? for me as an anthropologist, I cannot help but think that it is a very old instinct that says a well-tended grave means someone is being remembered. A well-tended grave means lots of stones. You cannot convince me that there is not some instinct left that says, still for us, if you want to say this person's being remembered, you put a stone at the monument. Because if you go somewhere and you see a bunch of stones on a grave, what do we what do we know? This is a teacher who's been followed by a lot of students. This is a leader who's well-respected. You look at Yitzhak Rabin's, you know... Monument stone, you know, Zirchanoli Racha, may his memory be for a blessing, and it's covered in pebbles, right? And it's like. Like the Ronald Wallenberg one, the sign, the Budapest. It was all covered. Exactly. So, I mean, it's not proven that that's, you know, that it links that far back, but I like to think so. Sir. Yes. Wasn't it the custom to put the body into a cave? Yes. Rather than bury it? Yes. And that the bones eventually may have been buried. Yes. Secondary burial. Yes. But remember, Torah is written over a very long period of time, like over a thousand years. So burial customs evolved and changed. And we did have other kinds of burial later. that, that last discussion right now shows that there couldn't have been an understanding that it was preserving bodies for resurrection later because they knew the bodies were going to disintegrate and disappear with time, if not with flame. And I, I feel like some of the flame stuff is... It doesn't, it, it doesn't hit me in my kishkas, uh-huh. necessarily, that that would somehow be different than prote- uh, a wrong thing to do. I think you could... Instead of rotting? It. Yeah, instead of rotting, it, you could just as well poetically describe it as, you know, returning to ash, that you're part of the stardust that you were made from and that you are respecting the earth by making the smallest impact. And I'm, Well, a lot, of, describe it in a, in a lot of Jews way. are agreeing with you. More and more and more and we see right for it's lots just, of reasons there isn't a right or wrong. Right. 100%. Kishkas are never about right or wrong. 
But they're not. I mean, they bypass the thinking brain. Our kishkas, right, have a brain of their own, right? That part of the, you know, they, they, they do. They have their own response that really isn't about the prefrontal cortex making a decision about right or wrong. Um, so a lot of Jews are moving towards cremation for lots of reasons. Some are, I think, the cost of, of a burial right now is ridiculous. If you live in Los Angeles and need to buy a burial plot, do you know what kind of money we're talking about? You can buy it used. You can buy it used. Oh, on the secondary market. You can buy it. You can buy You can buy one that's been owned, pre-owned. It's generally not used. It's generally pre-owned. Um, and so, so the cost is really high. A lot of people are dying not close to relatives, so who's going to deal with that? Or they have a plot somewhere across the country, and now they die here in Arizona where they've retired. Like, they, they know somebody's going to have to fly my body back, or the children decide it's what? No, like, you know, so, but we don't have a plot. But it's so, for lots of green, a lot of people are wanting to preserve, you know, like, and saying, I don't want to take up space in the ground. I don't think it's a very good argument. My green argument is be buried in the ground. Why do you think I think that's a green argument? You just said it. Fertilize Fertilize the soil. Because if you have a huge cemetery, you can't put a strip mall there. Where I grew up in Atlanta, all the stuff that used to be wooded and green are now strip malls and asphalt. And parking lots for the strip malls. They they put strip malls between big buildings, right? Like it, it, there's no green space in the city anymore except cemeteries. So go to Hillside. It is an amazingly beautiful place, right in the middle, right by the 99 cent store and the 405 and. And the big mall, the Westfield Mall. And the airport. Exactly. (laughs) So where are we? All right, so here we are. We're back at the text, but but it's not apropos what we're talking about. It's not completely separate, you know, what we're talking about. Because look how much energy there is. Look how much conversation there is, not even related to Tum'ah to the idea of ritual contamination, right? There's all this talk because we have a lot of energy around the issue of death because there isn't anything more profound for us you know, that we experience with loved ones and then we know it's coming for us even though we don't want to go there and we don't go there a lot. Um, there's nothing bigger, right? And so the topic has a lot of energy around it. So you, if it's that big for us, and we are so distanced from you know some of this understanding and connection to the cycles and of of the earth and of the seasons and of the crops and of the animals, we're so removed from that, and we have all this energy around it. Imagine in the ancient world, right? A lot of energy around this issue, and so the whole issue of death communicating the highest level of of contamination into life of the anti-life force you don't get more than than someone who a person who's dead Ruben uh, I wanted to get back to the text what you, read. Um, you the, the question why is um, ritual impurity so important and or why is ritual impurity so important and uh, 
there's an explanation here that I think is, is works for me. You want to share it? Yep. Uh, it says here, uh, this sort of impurity um, profanes the sanctuary or sacred objects and thus drives out God's presence. And that's the item that I think we seem to miss, that the point is that when you have ritual impurity, God is not there. So that's the story. Thank you, Reuben, for bringing us back to the point of Tum'ah and Tahara. It is not about something being bad, which is what we tend to go to. It's not about bad. It's about other than the divine, which is only pure and only holy, all pure, all holy, can't exist, like Reuben says, in a place with Tum'ah. It can't be there. So the idea is you want the divine presence among the people as much as possible. So that means staying in a, in a state of ritual purity as much as possible. So what is more other than God, the source of life? What, what is the antithesis of that? Death. So we also need to be clear, it's not the dead body that's communicating the impurity. What's communicating the impurity is death. Death is the anti-life force. We are a people that is all about affirming life. And so, so that is the biggest challenge to life, death. Okay. So how do we know it's not bad? The priest may not come into a state of tum'ah for, to, to bury a dead person because that requires too close a contact to the death force, except for a close family member, in which case he's supposed to do it, right? He's allowed to do it, which tells us it can't be bad because a priest would never be allowed to do something bad, never, it would be understood that a priest would make a mistake, right? That's why they have to bring a sin offering. But they would, he wouldn't be told, okay, you can do this. It's bad, but you can do it if it's your brother. That makes no sense. What is he doing exactly? Taking care of the final burial, you're dealing with the dead body. Okay, not necessarily touching it. Or Maybe. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So it's okay if it's one of your close relatives because it's, so in a way, do you see how that's yeah. actually saying it's a good thing to become ritually impure? Because you're allowed to for the people you really love that are really closest to you. It's understood for them, yes, you, you can be in a state of... You're excused from needing to be on call and ready to go for temple service. You're allowed to become ritually impure. That, that right there lets you know... That's sacred. It's It's sacred. You can't take on that sacred obligation for just anybody because it's going to disqualify you from service and we need you to be ready to fly, <laughs> right? But the pilot is allowed to take care of it when it's a family member and will find another pilot who's ready to fly. I prefer the word sacred than the, I don't know, the word impure. It, when you say something is impure. So what's the opposite of Pure. Of course, but I'm saying impure implies something bad. So that's why we have to just keep working at reconstructing that word. And calling yeah. it other. I call it's it not sacred. That, it's the opposite of sacred. That's the point. The duty to bury someone is sacred. But it is 
whatever the life force is, whatever purity is, it's about a, a state of complete otherness from that because one has confronted the death force. And you need time to be ready to come back to this state. So we use words like impure is bad. But in this system, it's impure means the opposite because you've come into contact with the opposite force. And we all know how that feels. And we know how that feels. We know what that is. We know what that is. And it's good, it's good to protect the people who lead us and have to deal with this, excuse them for doing it with their own families, but protect them and their energies from being uh, just disseminated all over the place to where they can't concentrate on their primary Interesting. So it's a form of protection for the priests from having to constantly be, they're already constantly, remember in this system, they are constantly in danger because they are dealing with the life force that is God that is nuclear, right? So they are constantly dealing with a very dangerous job and a very dangerous force. And the concentration to detail and following procedure that that takes is extraordinary. And so what I hear you saying is, so they shouldn't be like doing all this other stuff that can make that diffuse. Very interesting. It's a very interesting conversation to have with my colleagues. Right? Like, it is a very interesting conversation. In what ways, right, are, are we not focusing on our primary work when we get too diffuse because we're dealing with too many tragedies, funerals, I mean, illnesses. It reminds me of you. you know. right. mm-hmm. It reminds me of you. I mean, it's I mean, in, just in the sense, how many times can you be called to a million funerals? And then and do then a good job of preparing, job you know, a talk for Friday night. Right. Yeah. No, you know, the regular work. Right. That's what I felt when Sarah, Sarah was talking. Sarah's going to make a drush. She's going to deliver that at High Holidays <laughs> to the congregation. <laughs> All right, so um, there you go. Because if it's someone that you're their rabbi, you want your rabbi there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's very complicated. So that's why it's not bad, right? You know, so it's it's about it's not bad that that people want that. They sh- they should want that. The quest, you know, that's why I don't think this is about bad and good. It's about like Sarah says it's about focusing and protecting. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's about setting boundaries. Setting boundaries and limits. Yes. Right? Good social work, right? That's very funny. Um, all right, so let's look at five. They shall not shave smooth any parts of their head or cut the side growth of their beards or make gashes in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of God. For they offer Adonai's offering by fire, the food of their God, and so must be holy. Okay, so they shall not shave smooth any part of their head, which includes the face, or the side growth of their beards, 
or make gashes in their flesh. Who shall not do that? The Kohanim. And when shall they not do that? Okay, so that's what we don't know. Is it at all times? Or is it in relationship to having lost somebody? Possibly there were ancient Near Eastern customs around mourning and grief that you would have marked your status by shaving everything and a gash in the flesh does not sound to me like something you do of a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> right? It doesn't strike me as all time at all times. Remember, don't gash your flesh. It's not right. It's not right. It's that sounds to me, and it's paired with shaving. So it sounds to me like it may have been a Semitic thing to have a beard, except when morning. Maybe you shaved everything clean, you know, and 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 made wounds in your flesh that would have marked you, right? In the ancient world, we know that gashing is certainly one of the rituals that were associated with lots of different things. Flagellation. Flagellation was one of them, right? But also razor, right, scars. Raising scars on the skin marked you maybe as someone who's lost a father. Maybe it marks you as someone who's lost a child, right? We don't know. We have some... We have some record of some of this. We see some of it, if you look um, in African <coughs> cultures, you still see a lot of this rites of passage involve um, scarring on purpose the skin in a pattern um, with a, a very sharp instrument. So it's possible that's what it's talking about, is you, you priests have to be extraordinarily <coughs> careful. You have to have different boundaries even than everybody else, and it can't look like for five seconds that you're doing what neighboring cultures do around grief and mourning. It actually says here that shaving the hair and pulling it out were rites of mourning in the ancient world, and um, the Torah and its followers suffered from There you go. Right, a lot of the stuff that makes not a lot of sense to us is about... Um, differentiating us from what was happening in the neighborhood. No Christmas tree in the living room. Right. right? It's not that trees in the house are bad. It's that it means something to the neighboring majority culture that makes it feel like you might be slipping and sliding into what they're doing. Even though that's not what you mean. Even though for you it's a Hanukkah bush. <laughs> it's a slippery slope from a Hanukkah bush to roasted ham. Just saying. <laughs> okay, so so this obviously was taken in the observant Jewish world, in the rabbinic world, this obviously was taken to mean all the time. You may not gash your flesh anytime, and you may not shave. If you want to be holy, you don't shave your head anywhere, and or the, you don't cut the sides of your beards. Here's where we get pay us. Right? So, yeah, you don't you don't shave that. You don't shave that. Clearly that is how rabbinic law interpreted this verse is for all time. Because you, you shall be holy, which means don't do it or you're not remaining holy. So it started out as a 
That is our theory, that it was a, an expression against um, extreme demonstrations of mourning or the majority, you know, the Canaanite surrounding culture's way of expressing religious observances of mourning. Tattoos. Tattoos go to the same issue of, yeah. you know, not kind of permanently changing the... And, but the rabbis take it another step. So the you shall be holy means you shall not change the body that God gave you by mutilating it in any way. That is a rabbinic thing. That's not here. So now you're talking about everybody, not just the priests. Correct. The rabbis expand it to say if it's about holiness, if it's about Kedusha, and we're supposed to be an Am Kadosh, a holy people, we're a nation of priests now, there are no priests, then what it really means, what God really meant was ever, anybody, don't. And then it becomes, then they lay another layer of values on it that's not about just not gashing in specific, it's about why shouldn't you do that because you shouldn't mutilate the body God gave you. That's disrespectful. Correct. That's what Mickey just said. So, um, but, you know, that, that's rabbinic. All right. Where are we? Oh, yeah. Love this one. Um, yes. This was going to be on our family retreat last year. Rabbi Carey and I were looking at the text, and I'm like, oh, right, definitely, yeah, right. This is going to be good. All right, seven. They shall not marry a woman defiled by harlotry, nor shall they marry one divorced from her husband. For they are holy to their God, and you must treat them as holy. Since they offer the food of your God, they shall be holy to you. For I, Adonai, who sanctify you, am holy. Okay, so just as they are not supposed to do certain things about their bodies, they, their bodies in direct relationship to somebody else's body has limits and boundaries. Any social worker knows there are people it is inappropriate for you to have a sexual and intimate relationship with, yes? Ooh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, says Fern. Paula Fern. All right, so... Yes, so... It's not that sex is bad. It's not that you can't work as a prostitute if you'd like to. It's that for the priests or that being divorced is bad. It is other. It is not normative in the ancient world to be divorced or to be a prostitute. It's not normative. So the priests, of course, are going to have to be boundaried always by what is normative. Yes? So it is not bad to have a relationship with somebody who is 15 years younger than you, let's say. Unless, Paula? They're divorced. (laughs) (laughs) Unless they're married to someone else. Unless they're your student. (laughs) Unless they're your protege at work, right? There's places where it's not the relationship or the people in them that there's a problem with. There's nothing wrong with the people. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing, being a student, being a professor. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but, um, but if while you're in those states, you, you know, if you are, there's just boundaries that we don't think are appropriate to cross. We have very different understandings of what that means from what they did in the ancient world. But there you go. What is this food of your God? They are offering the sacrifices that go up to God 
they're offering the grain, the oil, the wine, all of the offerings that they eat because they've been offered to God. All right. Let's go on. Can we skip this one? No, that definitely not. Yeah. Oh, wow, Laura, really? Not when you said that. I didn't know what it was. Skip. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I was wondering when we were going to get to the part that you didn't want to get to. I know, right? Where is it? Is it? Where is it? There's a lot of stonings, too. Robert reminds us it's not just burning. Oh. Right? It's stoning, too. Um. Actually, I do want to go to the part that I want to get to. Um, so the other point of MWR where people, another category, right, that's, that's difficult for us, um, is, is look at 17, 22, 17. She is scared. I totally, it's like. Somebody read 17. Speak to Aaron and say, No man of your offspring throughout the ages who has a defect shall be qualified to offer the food to his God. No one at all who has defect shall be qualified. No man who is blind or lame or has limbs too short or too long. No man who has a broken leg or a broken arm or who is a hunchback or a dwarf or who has a growth in his eyes, or who has a boil, scar, or scurvy, or crushed death. Oh my goodness. My goodness. Yes. See, <laughs> <laughs> no man among the offspring of Aaron, please, who has a defect, shall be qualified to offer the Lord's gift. Having a defect, he shall not be qualified to offer the food to his God. Okay, so we. So Take and pass? So, right, these, so already we're getting all of these categories and all these boundaries that, like, just are hard for us, right? To, unacceptable. They're unacceptable, says Paula, to us as categories that should remain in any way, right? It's like we, we've evolved so far past an understanding such as this one, and yet, and yet. I was reading a commentary on this portion by my friend and colleague, Rabbi Josh Lesser, who is the rabbi of the Gay and Lesbian Synagogue, or the synagogue, the Reconstruction Synagogue with special outreach to gays and lesbians uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, my old congregation. And, and he wrote a commentary that I found very interesting. I didn't bring it for you because there's a couple of others here that are really nice. Um, But Josh made this amazing, he has this amazing insight as a gay man about how we look at this and go, ew, right? Like imperfection, like that, that, you know, that anybody would in any way be ableist, you know, or, you know, somehow think that perfection is, and he goes, go to any gay men's bar. Look at any gay male magazine. Be a gay man trying to live with a regular body and you find it is still here. We say we're past this. In fact, we are nowhere near past this. That the pressure on gay men to be thin, to be buff, to be beautiful, 
to be groomed, to have beautiful clothes, right? That the pressure on them and the pressure that is internalized, right, is really very similar to the kinds of things we see expressed here. And we are so horrified by this. And yet, if you look at a magazine, what women are, are, aren't we so close, all of us, each of us, to the ideal of beauty in our country, right? Don't you feel, when you open a magazine, that, that, that it expresses who you are? Don't you feel good about yourself when you see billboards? Don't you feel good about yourself when you see even TV shows? Especially if you're an older woman. Especially if you're an older woman. Because in this list, we might as well put old. And that means over 21. (laughs) As defined by our culture, for sure, right? Like, you know, you're already over the hill as a model at, you know, 20. So, so on the one hand, we tend to go, oh, ish, thank God we are so far past this. And then I read Josh's article and went, wow, right? We are not anywhere near past this. Well, Rabbi, a lot of the pressure you're talking about is within that culture. It's, it's the homosexuals who want, uh, who judge other homosexuals that way. Sure. So what he's saying is... I don't care if a homosexual is sloppy, but... Right. So all he was saying is, we still live in cultures in our country, that's the one that's most glaringly obvious for him, where we're not past this. We say, oh, ish, I'm so glad we've evolved. And yet... You know, he, he, he made the connection, like studying this Parsha, and he, actually he was talking about working with people with disabilities. He, he, made, he made a connection between the pressure that we feel to be perfect, physically perfect, right? How many people spend how much money, time, energy, pain on the bicycle, whatever it is, right? Oh, yeah. Right, to be... I know we're doing it to be healthy. I know that. Um, and there's this pressure, right? Surgeries. I mean, and there's this real pressure to be perfect or closer to the ideal, you know, whatever that is. Now, we get a list of what perfect means in the ancient world here that we might go, okay, whatever. But can you imagine a Miss America in a wheelchair? Amen. Wouldn't that be good? Right? I can't. <laughs> I think, though, that we have, I, 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 we have a culture of perfection and, and what the ideals, and they always have had, and whatever the ideal is has changed. But we do also have idealistic notions of what should be. We have Americans with Disabilities Act, where we want to strive towards, but we know that the, the right thing is that everybody should be included. We may not say, ooh, I want to be, I want to look like that. Ooh, I hope that I, you know, my child is born with three fingers. But we do strive to say that doesn't matter, that doesn't define people, and we want to make, bring people in. So why do we need a law? That's what I'm saying. We, we know that we're not there. And that's why I still get to sue people, because they don't know. They're not educated. They make mistakes. And we have this law because in our ideals, we want to not be that way. 
Yes. Because our idea has changed, thank God. But not of the idea of perfection. I mean, maybe but, that's right. different things. Right. Maybe the idea of inclusivity right. and access and opportunities so, that's different than saying you are you know, going to be on the cover of Vogue. So the piece that I gave you, inclusivity and access, we... I, I, Obviously, last night, I was like, okay, how much can I give them? Why <laughs> just like deal with this? Um, but this piece is about exactly that, which is, yes, we still have this complicated relationship to the ideal of perfection. And as soon as the priesthood was destroyed, the rabbis so shift the focus that it's now about inclusivity, that everyone can pray. Everyone is welcome Right at the service, everyone has access to the text. Everyone, everyone, everyone. Like this, this real stretch to say everyone is included and, and is obligated, you know, in some ways, you know, to certain things. Not the exclusivity of the priesthood. And so, this piece by Michelle Kay is exploring the idea of you know evolution within the tradition happened immediately when the priesthood was destroyed because the pressure against it was already there. Right, the evolution towards another way of understanding things was already there, or we wouldn't be sitting here. If everybody bought into the cultic system the way it was, and there was no push forward to something else, we wouldn't be sitting here. There was already, you know, pressure understanding. Wait a minute, right? These categories aren't making the kind of of deep sense that, right, that people understood um, that they were evolving. Um, so, just to share, I don't know if anyone saw this but it's very interesting, at least gives you a teeny bit of hope, and that is that the Today Show did this whole thing on, there was a, there's artists or a company or something out of Sweden, I think it was, that they make mannequins that look like real people. And so they picked three or four New Yorkers, one that was in a wheelchair, one that was like, very tall, one that was uh, very heavy, very heavy, and I can't remember, I think one that was just sort of a, a normal person, and the normal person is... Typical. Typical. No, like yeah. normal. It's normal. Not too thin, right. not too fat, just normal, what we all are. Typical. Right, typical. And so... That's the language people use who are dealing with people who are not typical right is the typical is the politically correct term let's just put it this way not a model just a typical person yeah so they they spent time with these artists each individual person and they revealed after spending all this time what the the, mannequin of yourself and the question was looking in the mirror is this how you see yourself and they unveiled it, and it was really so interesting, and they all were very, very different, of course, than each other's and what you would see in the store. And one thing that one of the anchors said was, which store is going to step up and use these first? Right. And 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 design clothes like to go on them that would actually go on them and look right, right? It's like even the clothes that are available to buy are for those mannequins, right? I look at the fashion today, like for women, and I go, "Are you kidding me?" I could know you have to be twelve years old and stick thin, not having gone through puberty yet, to get into any one of those skirts. Right? I, I can only buy a skirt at a thrift store. Yeah. 
my granddaughter Amanda, who tells me uh, there's a new trend for models to be in their 30s and 40s. Okay. I can't wait to see that be normative. Oh, <laughs> Linda? Right. Yep. Real cars. So today's show this morning had this famous designer have women of all different shapes and sizes come out in their underwear. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Oh, there's and the be on today's show with her body just as oh, it is, you know. But but my understanding is the Dove campaign didn't do well. People reacted negatively, and Dove had to pull it because people said, "I do not need to see that woman in her underwear." Like I do not need to see. I can see her in the mirror. I can see her in the mirror. Sarah, yes. So, so the interesting relationship between our ideal of ourselves that Laura is talking about, the ideal that we have that we are pat, that we want to be past that, and the reality is, I don't want to see there what I see in the mirror. Ugh, right? Like you know, like right? I, I want like we were we want to be past something that. We're still hardwired in some way, like not to be passed. We start doing that to our own children when they're young, the way we dress them, and here they are. We want them to be looking perfect and cute and all of that stuff. Right? They, they, you know, it's we we bring that to them. We do this. To this them. has to start at such an early age. Oh I mean, my it God! It really does. does. The education of this has to. So and now they're thing of the thigh gap. And wow. the, yeah. the thigh gap. The thigh gap, you guys, is disgusting. What is that? That yeah. the girls, teenage girls, should have a gap between oh. their thighs, otherwise they're too fat. So when they stand, yeah. there should be a gap. What's that called? That's a thing. The thigh gap. It's a thing. It is. It's a thing. It is a thing. What? Disgusting. And I frightening. I got so angry. Yeah. 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 Obviously, this what? is a hot issue. <laughs> <laughs> we think it has to do with us right now. And I would be all the magazines and blah, blah, blah. But it clearly, I mean, if you look at the book, it, it's human. Maybe it is the expression of the opposite of the death force, but the life force is a, tr- it's a sexual thing, right? It's a, we are, we are hardwired to respond to... What we think of as that, I don't know, what we automatically respond to, I guess. So maybe that's why this ideal developed. So, so yes. So as an anthropologist, I love that we can go back to, okay, there are just some things that are hardwired because we are creatures, right? Creatures are drawn to mate with the healthiest example of creatureliness for that species possible so that our offspring have the greatest chance of survival. And so, 
you know, we know that the women having red lips, right, is about, you know, a state of health, a state of, you know, whatever, that, that the, in a minute, Blanche, that the, um, you know, the curved, you know, hip, the hips thing, you know, the waist, having a defined waist means she's not pregnant. So she's available, right, and breast meat fertile. So, so all of that stuff that she's the right age, she's fertile, she's not pregnant, right, all those triggers for this would be a good choice are hardwired. 100%. So there's always this pull between our creature side and our ideals that are about mind, heart, values, consciousness, spirit, God. <laughs> you know, like they're both there. And it's always this interplay between them that is really dynamic. And there are some issues that are going to be with us forever because we're human. And you're right. Attraction is one of them. And it's so non-choice based. Right? Like what we're attracted to, trust me, is so not choice based. Right? It is what it is. And... um, and that is just a reality that, that I think Torah, you know, like, like there's that famous midrash I've told you about where the angels go to God and go, really? Really? You're giving Torah to those apes? Really? They're gross. Have you smelled one of them recently? To humanity, you're giving the greatest gift ever to Torah? What, like, how? Master of the universe, could you do this? And, and of course, the answer in the Midrash is God says to the angels, do you steal? Do you murder? Do you cheat on your spouses? No. Why? Because they don't have any of those creaturely things. And it's understood that Torah is to mitigate, to put boundaries and limits on, to live into the ideals of what we aren't yet. Torah, that's its point. We don't need it without that. Right? Without those things that pull us as creatures, as humans, towards something that we decide out of our ethics and values and consciousness is wrong, because that's a category known only to human beings, wrong, um, right and wrong, that, that Torah is all about exploring how do we sanctify those appetites in the language of Rabbi Harold Kushner. How do we sanctify hunger? How do we sanctify sex? How do we sanctify rest? These are just basic, built-in, creaturely human needs. When we put thoughtful limits and boundaries on them, we then can harness them and allow them to be expressed freely and blessedly. Blessedly. It is a mitzvah to have sex. It is a mitzvah to have sex on Shabbos. Double points. You get the sex mitzvah and oneg, pleasure mitzvah, on Shabbos, on holidays, right? So it's not just, oh, it's okay, we'll put limits on your sexuality because after all, you have to do it. It's what I love about our tradition is that it says that's a, that's a good thing that we have this impulse. It's a good thing that we have this instinct because we wouldn't have children otherwise, if you're thinking typically. Um, and, and we wouldn't have the pleasure of our bodies that God gave us that we should enjoy. We just need to be clear about making decisions and about when is it 
What are the boundaries and limits around it so that we can then live completely fully into it? Any Jewish mother, you go to her house and like start being stingy about what you eat? Oh. Come on. It is a downright insult, right? Like we're supposed to enjoy eating. We just can't eat everything and at all times and in any way we want. You can't have a vomitorium, eat, go throw it up and come eat again, right? That that is, in Rome, that was the highest ideal you could reach, right? And Judaism would say, ew, but you better enjoy your mother-in-law's chicken soup to the fullest, right? Blanche isn't trying to say something. Yes, um, to, well, I grew up hearing songs like, you have to be young and beautiful if you want to be loved. Now, I bring that up often to males who say, why do you take so long getting ready? (laughs) (laughs) What males, man? Why do you have to take so many clothes on a cruise? (laughs) For instance. Because you're expected to dress. That's right. And well. Mm-hmm. So it's confusing. I raised three daughters and we all survived it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, the point you bring up, Blaze, I was just talking to Rabbi Rubin the other day about allergies and this dry air and the dust and my eyes are just staying red <laughs> and irritated. Doesn't matter how much you know, anti-allergy stuff I take. It doesn't matter how many drops I use. They stay, and I said a mascara makes it so much worse. It just, it just dr- keeps them dry and irritated. He's like, well, have you tried? Yes, I've tried every kind that is hypoallergenic for sensitive blah, blah, blah. I've tried them all. They, it's just the most awful stuff you can imagine. And he's like, so why do you wear it? I'm like, <laughs> only a man could ask that question. Even a deep, wise, amazing one like Rabbi Ruth. Like, I said, because a woman doesn't look groomed if she doesn't in this, like, even in this business. If I don't wear mascara, are you kidding me? People are going to say, I'm going to trust you with a bris? <laughs> Come on. When you can't even get your eye makeup on? <laughs> right there. There. I need falsies or something. But the, the but the expectation is right that if you don't tend to that, then th- you're already saying something without meaning to about who you are or aren't and what you're capable of and not capable of. It's that deep, right? It is absolutely that deep. You're right. Why do we take fourteen suitcases on a cruise? Because you're going to expect me to be in a different outfit in the morning than I was for the thing in the afternoon for the show at night. I'm get, right. Those are f- three different outfits. <laughs> Right. One thing, and then we're going to go to Chef of Gold. Look uh, for Chef of Gold. Yeah, I was going to say that, especially living in Hollywood in California, it's even, it makes it even worse. Because in the culture where I came from, during my father's time, in Vermont, did not have good meat on her. She was not considered a healthy woman. Right. Different standards, right, of beauty. Absolutely. And it is very much culturally defined in that sense. Me and my meat have to go. (laughs) Just one more thing. But but do you have a thigh gap, though? I don't have a thigh gap. Can you all tell? I am very happy about it. (laughs) 
Even the American Psychiatric Association in their um, categories of what's considered, what you assess for for dementia or for depression, one of the categories is right. self-grooming. That's right. So it's, it's self-grooming. Self-grooming is a category that is one of the categories that indicates dementia or depression. Because we are hardwired to groom, right? We are. Have you watched a cat when they have some free time? If right. You, if you're not neat and well groomed, you're not taking care of yourself. If you're not taking care of yourself, you might something's be wrong. Right. You might be crazy. You might be nuts. You might have dementia. Right. So that's. A, and so the standard is set by the culture we live in about what is attention to grooming. And and, and status is tied to that, right? So people of different status have different expectations right. around their grooming right. standard, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't expect the person working on the air conditioning to be dressed in something, right? I mean, it, it, and it's all, it's interesting how much is subconscious, right? How many of those things are subconscious? But anyway, all right, let's look at Rabbi Shefagold. Go to the second paragraph under the blessing. Yes? I gave you Shefa in your packet. She may be last. No, she's not. The one with the teeny tiny print. The last shall be first. And the last shall be first. Thank you, Reuben. All right. As I seek to fulfill my priestly function, because you know Rabbi Gold is always going to take the lessons of Torah and apply them to our inner spiritual lives, and it's for all time. The teaching of Leviticus is for all time. So she says, as I seek to fulfill my priestly function, right, because it's for all of us, these texts are for all of us, they are true for all time, in, in the way we talk about true, right? I look at the physical universe that surrounds me, I look at nature, I look into the human predicament of every person that I meet, and I cannot find something that is unblemished. The closer I look, the more imperfections I find. Everything and everyone is in process. We are all searching for balance in a world that is in flux. We are all flawed. Our physical bodies are slowly or quickly decaying. This is the paradox of Emor. I and everything that I offer is likewise flawed. Marked with the limitations of my particular perspective and prejudice. And yet, the truth of perfection permeates the atmosphere of my life like a tantalizing fragrance. And more, this parsha is a, par- is a paradox. To receive the blessing of paradox means that I must expand my embrace. I must create a wider context in which to live and encompass the contradictions that the paradox offers. To live with paradox means I must always be expanding my conceptions of reality. I live in process, continually opening to the wider view. The process itself touches me with its beauty. The paradox is that we are both perfect and imperfect at the same time. 
If the priestly function is to mediate between the human and divine, of course it makes sense that we are made of both. There are times when I look into this world or into the blemishes of my own character and I am shown the perfection of the whole. Not only do I see it, I experience that perfection as a rightness and I am overcome by its heart-shattering beauty. I celebrate the perfection and let it inspire and empower me. Experiencing that perfection gives me the strength to bear the imperfections. And within the perfection of this dance, we learn and suffer, die, and are reborn. Those blemishes that might have disqualified me from the priesthood actually become the doorways into my power as a priest. It is only when I deny those blemishes or hide them from God that my offerings are rejected. When I enter through them, I can touch the perfection within all imperfection. Our spiritual challenge is to acknowledge with eyes wide open our flaws and the harm we cause through them, the suffering, injustice, and cruelty that pervade our world, and at the same time, to see the absolute perfection of it all. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.